1: of death and grief. Each week I talk to a different person about their experiences of grief and death as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club. Welcome to Griefcast.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
3: Hey
1: griefsters. I hope you're having an okay week. Whatever tier you're in, currently listening to this, congratulations if you live somewhere where your tier got reduced and um, commiserations if, like me, you live in uh, London and you are now in a higher tier. Um, I was working on a pantomime at the National Theatre. Yep, get me. Sometimes I do jokes for a living, I don't just talk about dead people and we uh, got cancelled um, but we did record it and it is going out on YouTube I think for the 23rd of December um, so if you want to watch that it's, a, it's a Dick Whittington so it's quite some smarty jokes <laughs> it's not that much about death sorry guys um, this is a very special episode that we are doing for the end of the year we do this, try and do this every year I didn't know if we were going to make it this year um, but we are And this is just a compilation of clips from some... I mean, highlights, can I use the word highlights on a show about death? Um, Of episodes that we have had on. Um, It's quite helpful, perhaps you missed a few episodes, just to listen to, yeah, some lovely moments and discussions that we've had. Before we start, I just want to say thank you genuinely so much to each and every one of you that listened to the show, message me, tweet about it, spread the word about it, and encouraged me to keep going it's it's an incredible community of griefsters that we have here the show is four years old now I honestly didn't think we'd get here and um, I wouldn't have done if it wasn't for you so genuinely thank you I'm, I'm sorry that we're all in this club but I'm, I'm glad that we're all here together I am writing a book I know some of you have been asking me about it it's just got a bit slow guys I had a baby there's a pandemic so that slowed it down but um, yeah as soon as I have any announcement about that you will be the first to hear Um, you can obviously also follow us on Twitter and Instagram Um, if you're feeling rubbish the Twitter and Instagram is quite a good place sometimes if you have any questions about grief or looking for resources I'll always retweet stuff and the, the Griefster community on there is incredible they always help people out so remember as ever you are not alone i've talked to some incredible people this year i've been so so grateful to everyone who's come to talk to me remotely it was the first season we've ever recorded online and not face to face um thanks to the pandemic but actually i was really glad because it meant i got to talk to some people that perhaps i wouldn't have been able to before perhaps wouldn't be able to get schedules to work so um you know (laughs) something to be grateful for in 2020 a tiny thing um so yeah here is a compilation of just some incredible people in this first section you're going to hear the incredible adam buxton it was a very bittersweet feeling that he came back to speak to me obviously i love talking to adam but sadly he had another death to come and share with me but as ever it was joyously wonderful to talk to him about the big topics we're also going to hear from the amazing Candice Brathwaite, uh, who had an incredible best-selling book out this year called I'm Not Your Baby Mother and spoke to me very honestly about um, her dad and the story that had happened there. And we're going to hear from gardener and journalist Monty Don and his wonderful
0: dog, Nigel. She passed away that night. That so night. So she was just getting worse and worse in the night. And I was really worried about her. And I was thinking, I don't know what to do. And then then I, I just got very worried and I phoned the um, ambulance. And then they came over and they run through their whole routine of... Because hmm. you know, I'm still in the mindset of, okay, she's bad. She's weak. Yeah. She's been in hospital for a few days. She just needs some looking after. Then she's going to bounce back. Um, she was 81. Hmm. So... I mean, that's old, but it's not ancient, ancient. Anyway, my dad was 91 when he died. Wow. So I was thinking that I I had that fixed in my head as an (laughs) unreasonably as a, oh, everyone lives to 91. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. (laughs) You know, even though that's a long time. Anyway, um, the, what are they called? uh, EMTs, the emergency medical tech guys, they turn up in their ambulance with their, machines and their shock pads and their gurneys and everything and um, it's a little bit like having your house raided by some special mm. branch of the cops you know they weren't <laughs> they were nice but they're in emt mode so yeah, they're not yeah, going yeah. how are you doing would you like a cup of tea is everything everything's gonna be okay don't worry they're just like where where do we go right step back we are going to do our things and they're sort of chatting technical jargon to each other and then they sort of go through the the um, disclaimer like, "Okay, you appreciate that, um, you know? Do you want us to revive her if she stops breathing?" Um, I'm like, "Yeah, I don't know. Well, we should say that. Uh, from looking at her, it looks unlikely that she would survive uh, resuscitation, um, and there is a chance when we take her down to the ambulance that she will die in transit." Are you uh, oh aware God. of that? Are you okay with that? They weren't. They, they weren't saying this brutally. I'm making it sound like they were being callous. They weren't. Yeah. They were just going through their checklist. What they have to say. Uh... Exactly. In an in as an efficient way as possible. And I was just like, yeah, 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 fine. You know, whatever. Just,
1: just just do the thing. Just do it. Yeah.
0: I was like, okay. You know, I was packing a bag to go to hospital. I was like, here we go. It's going to be hospital time now for the next few days, weeks, whatever. And uh, so they get her on the, they get her on the gurney. Meanwhile, my mom's sort of in and out of lucidity. I mean, she's pretty much gone by that point, but she's still conscious. And but she's pulling away at the at the mask, the oxygen mask. Mm. And I'm like, no, mum, keep the mask on. But she's not really chatting, and she's not really saying anything. Anyway, they they put her on the, they strap her to the gurney and they lift her up and and take her downstairs. But she uh, and then they and they put her in the back of the ambulance and we're stood out there, me and my wife. And then and then he says, uh, I'm afraid her heart stopped.
1: Oh,
2: Adam.
0: yeah. And so. Um, so it's like, oh, shit, that happened. They said it might. And it has. And it's a really bad moment. You're like, whoa, whoa hang on a second. Now this is a nightmare. They said it was. I didn't think that was a realistic possibility.
1: Yeah, you just thought you would, like, terms and conditions apply. Yes, yes, Exactly, yes, sure, yeah, sure, yeah.
0: So. And oh, so then my. it's like your mind is reeling. And it's all these weird thoughts are, are, are zipping through, you know, like, oh, my God, she's gone. And, oh, no, I let her down. And, oh, shit, maybe she'd still be alive if I didn't go and pick her up in from her home and all these stuff like in 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 milliseconds you're processing and and then memories happy memories and sad memories and then sort of weird very practical calculations like oh i'd I'd kind of mapped out the rest of this year and possible next few years as mum's going to be living with us and we're going to be looking after her and now that's not going to happen And, oh, I suppose that leaves me with a bit more time for (laughs) DIY. You know, all these kind of strange thoughts are going through and you're processing them and you're dimly aware of some of them. And and I was thinking, shit, my brother and sister are going to think that I killed her. (laughs) Um, (laughs) They're going to be thinking, oh, why did, it's all about you and your big house in the country, isn't it? Why don't you just leave well enough alone? (laughs) She was fine. And now (laughs) you've brought her out (laughs) to Norfolk and you killed her. So fuck you! Totally, You're not like getting any Christmas presents. Totally relate
1: to being a sibling, and and that's like like oh god, I was in charge when that thing happened. Like oh no, like, yeah, oh shit, I'm gonna get shit for this, aren't I? Like
0: <laughs> oh man, it was so strange.
3: I think I'm I'm still learning what to do with my grief mm. because then it went on to his ashes were scattered without me, so I don't know. Oh god. Like, so there's no grave site. I've got no ashes, no urn, nothing like that. Like, they really took it to the
1: hills. (laughs) Yeah, they really, they committed to this, didn't they? They were like, we're not just going to halfway house this. We're going to do this as much as we can.
3: So, I'm just, I'm still, I'm still on that journey. Mm. Because, uh, you know, I've got, there's a graveyard near my house. And again, I just watch people go there with, I'm jealous. And they're like tending to their loved one's grave. And I'm like... What does that
1: feel yeah, like? Yeah, I think it's... I mean, we talk about this a lot on the show as well, of, like, if, if you can have these conversations before people die,
3: mm. it is so
1: important because however well a family gets on, there will be complications because once that person isn't there to say, and especially, like, when it comes to ashes, graveyard, you know, all that kind of stuff... Because I think sometimes we, um, what's what I'm looking for? Like, we we sidestep it because it's, it's uncomfortable. Like, that stuff really yeah. matters. Like, you yes. you not having a place to go to is hard. And mm. But then, you know, that could have been that conversation that could have happened with your dad. But, of course, when you're young, it's very difficult to think yeah. these things, isn't it? I think when you're older, you think, oh, yes, I should talk to my elderly parent. But when you're, like, 15 yeah. or 20, you're like, am I going to discuss them where they want to be buried? Like, no, I don't. How do mm. I start that conversation? But yeah that yeah. must be have you found a way of like making a place that you can go to because i mean you know really it's it's about you not them I
3: I, th- I think he made a place my Esme is born on the day he died oh. and i so i think wow. I'm very believing in like there being like separate planes mm. and him being there and me being here. And I think he, he works overtime on my <laughs> behalf. I, <laughs> I really do. I think he, he looks at the situation and he's like, right, I couldn't control that, but I'm going to have a hand in all of this. And so when, whenever I look at Esme or we celebrate her birthday, I'm like, okay, that's where that feeling yeah. is. That's where that energy is. And then my son is born on my birthday and he's called I called him Richard after my dad and uh, little Richard is just the mirror image of big Richard the attitude (laughs) the stubbornness the (laughs) laugh I'm just like you will never meet this guy but you're just like twin flex it's just so cute and so I think so much of my grief is wrapped up in the love I have for my kids
4: The extraordinary thing about Nigel was that he was, and I'm really not exaggerating, he was world famous. He was, (laughs) uh, at Christmas, he used to get more Christmas cards than we did. We Every week, every week, we always got about half a dozen letters addressed to Nigel Longmeadow, Herefordshire. Now, Longmeadow is a made-up name. It's not the name (laughs) of my house. It's a standard BBC play. So it's just Nigel who, just Nigel, (laughs) made-up name, county. And 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 what I never knew was, were there every week 500 letters that didn't get delivered to us? Because people said, what? (laughs) I don't know. Who's this? Nigel Nigel and
1: Hertfordshire. Like, why am I getting these cards? It's so weird. Or
4: is it just the genius of the post office, you know, that that delivers the mail? Um, He was genuinely loved. On his birthday, there would be just piles of presents would come through for him. Whenever I gave (laughs) talks, I used to do a lot of um, sort of one-man shows. And I, I knew people just wanted, wanted Nigel. Really, if yeah. I came on with Nigel, they would have all <laughs> cheered. So I used to show a picture and say, OK, I'll go now. I'll just leave that up. You, you know, yeah. bathe in it, bask in it. And then when you've had enough, I'll come back. I remember crossing the street in Tokyo. Someone running saying, where's Nigel? Why haven't you got Nigel with you? Or getting onto a plane. <laughs> I got onto a plane in a small town. We were filming this garden in this little small town in Kansas. And I really genuinely can't remember the name of it. And the guy said, hi, guy. You know, where's your dog? Where's your dog? I went to, I had to go to Buckingham Palace uh, for something. And, and the policeman with his gun said, what? No, no, no. you know, it was, <laughs> it became a refrain. Always, you get yeah, on a plane. Yeah. So that I, he wasn't, he was co-owned. He mm. was ours, yeah. he was private and he was very public. So what I did was I didn't tell anyone for a week.
5: Mm. So we
4: could grieve and, ha- and own that grief
5: yeah, and we buried yeah.
4: him. And then we had this curious thing whereby I was filming for two days. So on the evening of the, the first day, of, we I you know, had the conversation with it, and I said, really? Okay, fine. Just, just. And he said, do you want to come and see him? And I said, actually, I don't because mm. you know I've, I've held him in my arms all night. I, I don't want to see him on a slab in your surgery yeah. through a window. But I said, I can't bury him t- tonight or tomorrow because I'm mm. filming. So they put him in the freezer The whole thing was both incredibly gut wrenchingly sad, but at the same time hysterically funny.
1: Yes, and so we were,
4: and so and I said, please make him look nice, you know. Just (laughs) so, and and then he said, well, we're going to have to fit him in. So I had to go (laughs) to fit him in the freezer.
1: Because Garden of James quite big and Nigel was quite a like you said, a big dog. He was, was a
4: big dog. He was, was a great dog. Why big, didn't they have a chest bear? freezer ready for this sort so, of situation? Uh, anyway, we buried him two days later. And of course he was frozen solid. So we <laughs>
6: so,
4: <laughs> we, <laughs> we So we oh dug this God. big hole in the garden. I mean I we have a A pet cemetery. He's the fifth dog we've buried in this area in the garden. And we dug a big hole, and we lined it with flowers that I picked from the garden, and we put 50 tennis balls, because he was mad about tennis (laughs) balls. And we got a bowl, and we put his favourite food, and we put lots of biscuits. And then we put frozen Nigel in there, who was, (laughs) as my son said, like a hairy lolly. He was... And in fact, he looked... Really peaceful. He was this yeah. great big bear asleep and because he'd been frozen, it was he was frozen in the moment of, of a calm death. Oh. So actually he looked just he really did look and his his fur was still flowing and fur but but yeah. you then touched the body and it was a block. It was just a stone wow. block. So that was both freaky and genuinely funny. I mean in other words we yes. were hysterical. We were we were laughing and crying and, and you know, all that.
1: Next, we're going to hear from Jess Mills. Uh, Jess came in to talk to me about her mum, Tessa Jow, uh, who I obviously knew of, but I didn't know a lot of the story behind her death and what happened and her incredible strength. And yeah, it was another amazing story to hear. You're also going to hear the incredible Lee Lawrence, who had a book out this year as well called The Louder I Will Sing. Lee's story is heartbreaking and brutal, and I I barely have the words for it, but what an incredible incredible, incredible, noble person that he is to come and share his story with us.
7: Her last ever kind of public appearance was a speech that she gave in, in the House of Lords where she made a, a, a call to completely transform cancer care and treatment mm-hmm. in the UK. I mean, it, it, it's not an overstatement to say that it was a, a triumphant moment. It, it absolutely was. I mean, I mean, even more so if you knew how poorly she was yeah, at that time because
1: I, I remember that speech I remember that irony of people listening because of what she'd been going through but in my head that was you know she was that wasn't so close to her death I, I didn't really now you say those timelines I'm like my goodness she must have been so that must have been incredibly well it she was- would need a lot of strength to stand up and talk about that in the house of
7: lords when you're suffering yourself it was on the 25th of january that she did the speech and she she died on the 12th of may so it was it was it was just you know just over three months and um but you know she she was a campaigner and, and a and mm-hmm. kind of an activist really through and through mum and so for her doing this speech and, and, and instigating this campaign the legacy of which has been huge and something that I work I'm working on in a very full-time way to deliver at that time it was it was just everything for her it was so important for her and a couple of days before she was due to do the speech, and then she also had um, a series of kind of big press moments as well. That week, she did a big interview with with Nick Robinson for for um, the Today the Today program. You know, we we were sat at home on on the Sunday, before this huge huge week that she had, and her speech by this point was really deteriorating. And she was she was so fucking hardcore mum in the most brilliant way and very unself pitying. But she'd become very good at actually masking how difficult it was. Mm. And she wouldn't let on, us on to us quite how difficult it was. And if she was struggling for work I mean, I I'd, obviously because I, I knew her so well, I could notice the kind of nuance and things that was changing before something mm. a big step down happened. But she was very good at masking it. But then on the Sunday before this big week that she was going, that she, she had, we were sat around just having dinner together as a family at her, at, her, at um, our house, family house, which was then in, in Highgate. and um, And suddenly, just mid sentence, she just couldn't, it was literally like her speech, every kind of component of her speech was just kind of scattered like a handful of marbles and there was absolutely it was like the motor function to form the words when the oh vocabulary went and it literally just went like that and it was it was it was one of the most kind of distressing moments really because it just suddenly felt this thing was so in the room with us mm. you know this thing which we no matter how much we we were trying to apply you know all of the kind of lessons of presence and just taking one day at a time and it was just absolutely in the air we were breathing all together. I think
1: that's a really um, powerful way of uh, visualising it and that's really interesting especially with cancer isn't it because you, you like you said you do so well and because you are a family unit and you know how to be you know you can very easily slip into family unit and the dynamics and chatting about things that need doing or what someone so and so rang and said this you know all that kind of minutiae of of a family and then suddenly to be reminded like oh god yeah the cancer is still very much here is yeah difficult sounds like a stupid word (laughs) like it just is difficult isn't it i guess it's that thing that we were talking about when you use the phrase dead and dying it's like you know as humans sometimes things are just too painful so you constantly sidestep them and look at them from an angle and then every now and again it it, it snaps slaps you in the face and you're like oh yeah this is happening yeah
7: and it's unavoidable and Mm. it's and it's and it's this weird thing of basically what you're talking about is a kind of cluster of cells of like this tiny biology small enough to hold in your hand yet has the power to fucking destroy your whole you know destroy your whole family i mean it's it's just so weird and this 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 day this this moment it was the most kind of tangible sense of that and then obviously with the build up to this massive week that she was about to have but mum she just turned to us and she just smiled and she sort of gestured to say it's okay to us and you know we were all really trying to hold it together but we clearly all very distressed mm. by what was going on anyway she wrote down on a piece of paper that she wanted to go and see her oncologist the next day to get some steroids so she went down to the Marsden picked up a load of steroids, which, which probably should have lasted her for a few weeks, basically dosed herself up. Oh, my God. Didn't even really tell it. I don't know how many of them she took, but she she dosed herself up so heavily that the next morning she was, like, sharp as a fucking button. Oh, my God. <laughs> she was just like, fuck this thing if it thinks yeah. it's going to stop me from doing this week. So every single moment of that, you know every single syllable of that speech when she took to her feet that day was a moment of sheer and utter grit determination to get through it which is why you know not only was it a triumph for what it was kind of communicating but it was just a very very unbelievable human triumph of determination and absolute kind of fire to live
5: So just to explain to you uh, a little mm. bit about what happened on the day, mm. so we'd fallen asleep in my mum's room I was in there my dad was in the room and my sister Sharon was in the room and my mum had got, well there was a noise and my mum would got up and I saw her walk into towards the door mm. so initially whatever that was I, I was still kind of half asleep and I saw her walking towards yeah. the door I thought okay mum's taking care of it laid back down and then I had another loud bang and I jumped up this time and he, I saw my mum just laying on the floor and um, bleeding basically and this, this this man standing over her sh- shouting her and then he, you know once I started to scream hysterically um, at this at this officer um, whose, whose name is um, Douglas Lovelock he then in turn said what I told you he said about mm. about telling me to every shout then my dad looked at me with fear in his eyes and at that time I, my, my dad used to be in the army so I thought if he's scared in this mm. moment then this must be serious And that was the only time that the reality kicked in for me and I started to feel the fear of what was happening. So they rushed us out of the room into the living room and there was about 30 officers in the house and dogs and guns. And I just felt like it was a bad nightmare. Mm. You know, I was just thinking, I need to wake up from this bad dream. And it was confusing. They had two female... FEMA female officers who were trying to console us at the time which was difficult because one breath you needed that and then, mm. and then another this was coming from the same people who you just seen shoot your mum yeah
1: you can't trust them right. can you you can't be like oh you're oh, a safe lady who's gonna make me feel better you're like no no you're on that team like
5: <laughs> exactly
1: i can't completely relax can i yeah right.
5: and immediately after the ambulance came they took my mum and they, and my dad went into a police car behind mm-hmm. her but they wouldn't let him into the ambulance so therefore we were just left in the house
1: oh my god on our
5: own basically um, with with the police so that was crazy
1: I just so I just like I hate the phrase I can't imagine but I can't imagine because it's just... The fear, the fear that you must have felt. Like, like you said, that's proper nightmare. That's horror film. That's like just just awful. And I know you, you talked about um, in your book, there was a moment where they told you she had died. Did that come from the police officers then or was that?
5: It was on the news, basically. Um, oh, my God. Because the only updates we were getting was from the news. So none of the police officers in the house, we just kept asking you know, what's happening, how's my mum, mm. and nobody could give us any answers. So we just had the TV on in the living room, which was where we was getting updates from, and they'd announced that my mum had died, which then, which was the thing that sparked the, the uprisings. Mm. I mean, it's famously known as the riots, but, I, you know, I prefer to refer to it as, a, as an uprising.
3: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Welcome back to Griefcast with Carrie Ad Lloyd. Thank you so much for listening to Now That's What I Call Griefcast. This is our end of the year show where we just choose some highlights, is not the right word for our show, but we just choose some moments that were really poignant and really funny and really brilliant, and we wanted to share them with you all together in case you miss any brilliant episodes. In this final section, we'll be hearing from Sarah Brown. Sarah came to talk to me about her baby, Jennifer, who died very shortly after she was born, and also the incredible research work that's happened since her death. We'll also be hearing from Robert Diamond, whose brother sadly passed away after taking the club drug ecstasy uh, when Robert was just a teenager and the effect that that had on him. And finally, we'll be hearing from musician, podcaster, writer, legend, Amanda Palmer, on her many, many experiences of grief and heartbreak and what those things mean to her.
8: I remember the letters that I'd read at the beginning of women who'd written to me saying, I lost a baby 50 years ago. And oh, um, and of course, at that time, no one talked about it. You sort oh. of were supposed to get over it, have another one, move on what I learned very quickly from from that group of women writing to me was something that's quite important now for me with my children. I have two teenagers now, and um, each child is so different. Jennifer is so different to my other two. Mm -hmm. And um, because you get to know that little person and who they are so they feel very separate and very individual from each other and lots of times people come at you from the outside with a sort of oh if you have another one it'll make it better and that's a very out of date out of date Mm. way of thinking but it also means you invest everything you know in there it's just you know everyone's different and everyone you love in your life is different and separate
1: it's a really strange thing that seems to happen with child um, and baby grief particularly Mm -hmm. because, you know, no one in my life has said to me, why don't you just get a new dad? Like no one's ever gone, oh, you know, let's just have another one, find another dad. It's like, they might say, oh, it's nice to have a male different male role models yeah but you wouldn't say that to someone whose grandma died no sure and yet but for children it's like this idea like you said that because you didn't know them inverted commas they weren't their personality wasn't completely fully formed therefore you won't you know miss them or you can just have another one and,
8: and it's the same as if it's a cat <laughs> but we but I think even
1: people with cats would disagree that yeah we know, you know and understand
8: not- a lot more I think I think ideas have have really shaped and and evolved and um mm. you know I know that What I was looking at um, and the experience that happened to us is is just very different now. I mean, it's still too high, the rates of stillbirths Mm. and neonatal deaths, and there's still so many things to explore and understand. But the breakthroughs have been extraordinary. Um, Mm. One thing that brought it round full circle for us is um, Gordon was obviously leader of the Labour Party, but... Prior to, you know, and before Tony Blair, John Smith had been the leader of the Labour Party, who had had died very suddenly. And um, his three daughters lost their dad far too young. But Catherine, uh, who's a lawyer, had um, married another lawyer. She has a, a little girl who was born very, very prematurely and had a very precarious start in life. And Ella is now... At nursery school and we'll be starting big school very soon and has thrived but when Catherine was in hospital being looked after they told her that what had saved her daughter's life was the work of our lab oh so that's incredible and everyone always says to you if if you save one life it's enough oh my god yeah
1: <laughs> you don't need to rack it up into the hundreds i think one is more than enough that's incredible
8: what but it just comes, oh.
2: yeah, full circle how yeah. it all connects. He was working in a garden centre in Beaconsfield. Mm. And um, I actually thought about that the other day because I knew I was doing this talk. And I remembered that I used to love going to see him at the garden centre because... Um, he used to get access to like the ice cream counter and um (laughs) and he he used to give me i think he used to nick them i mean it's so of course illegal but they were working at a garden center yeah yeah (laughs) exactly they were 50p twister ice creams oh you know those kind of yellow and green with the strawberries. yes and you can lick the ice cream right off exactly so he used to like steal one basically at the end of every shift and then bring it for me so we had this kind of very sweet friendship and in our young childhood like when we were young kids you know maybe like four to ten or something we were much more like odds and mm. he just thought I was some sort of like ballet dancer eccentric person that constantly wanted to put on performances for my my, my family friends he kind of liked it but not really and yeah. then he was this much cooler like rebellious you know so I called a few people up and said oh Andrew can't come to work today I remember leaving a message on their answer phone and as I said it I was kind of like what's actually happened this is so strange mm. and then I tried to go back and write my essay um as you would and I just couldn't do it and then maybe two hours later, my dad came back and he never said like, Andrew's died. He just said, Andrew's not coming home. And he was crying. So I was like, I didn't really know what had happened. So oh. this vicar was with him who'd driven him. So he didn't come in his car either. And I was mm. like, where's my mom? Like, it was so strange. And this vicar was kind of like, almost like apologizing to me or something. And he was very like serious and mm. um, almost kind of quiet and somber you know and i just didn't know what was going on so my dad was like hugging and kind of crying and kind of saying andrew's not coming home so i was like fine so then we get in the car i genuinely didn't know what had happened and we get we get in the car It's confusing
1: when you're that age isn't it
2: yeah but he'd obviously come back because they were like we've left rob alone and they must have (laughs) suddenly felt like they wanted to protect me you know i can't Mm. imagine what they were going through but um I, i got in the car and it was this little like Fiat Panda or something and we we, we drove all the way to High Wycombe and yeah and we turned up there and we we parked up and then we walked into the hospital and there was this kind of green door we were going through all those swing doors as you do in hospitals and there was this green door I always remember it with um kind of like reeded glass or Mm -hmm. like frosted glass and through it I could just see the shadows of like two or three people including my mum and my mum was crying like I'd never heard her cry before and I could see her kind of the shape of her body through the glass and I just remember being like oh my god Andrew must have died and that was how I found out like it wasn't like anyone said to me Andrew's died it was um yeah that was kind of how I did it and then when I walked in the room my mum just hugged me everyone broke down but I didn't because I just felt like I didn't really understand what was going on in a way.
1: I think that's so such a common thing with teenagers, or especially with thirteen, because you really are just a, you're just on that cusp of not yeah, being a Yeah, and I was li- like a, a month kid. from my fourteenth birthday. Oh god, so yeah, like it's, I was kind so of quite young. already
2: becoming quite um, independent and angsty yeah. and angry anyway. <laughs>
1: of co- yeah, um, it's totally. I really understand, yeah, because I was I was fifteen, nearly about three months off from being sixteen, I think, and um, when your dad died. Yeah, yeah. and I think like because you you just don't know what's going on like it's so it sounds so silly doesn't it but you're so confused I remember being so confused like what happened like I obviously I knew he had died we'd see like you know he'd had cancer
2: mm.
1: and then I remember we went back to the house and friends started appearing and they were crying and hugging me and I remember just like sort of like being stiff and being hugged and just being like mm, yeah because it was just like it doesn't your brain is really struggling to understand what dead means, what that yeah. means that someone's yeah, totally. not coming home. Yeah. Like you've had no experience of it. You're you're like scrabbling for something, aren't you? And you just feel like, well, I don't, I don't, yeah. And I feel like, I don't, feel I feel like I spent about 10 years just going, what? Sorry, what, what just happened? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> Even though I knew he's dead, carry on, that's what happened. I just couldn't, just, yeah, it was so confusing. such confusing when you're that young.
2: I think one of the things for us that was so different probably to your experience mm. was that because it happened out of the blue. Yes, it was um, such a shock. You, the main thing I think we spent years telling ourselves, I remember everyone in my family talking about it was like, what if? Like, mm. what, what if he hadn't gone to that club? Ugh. Like, what if he'd gone with a different group of friends? Mm. What if he had taken a different tablet? because he took um ecstasy and mm. he he just i think he even took like half a tablet or one tablet and and died from it so it was kind of like you know what if he it was all like what if basically and we lived with that for years yeah. and it, I, then i suddenly realized it was just really unhelpful because the truth is you can't change it and no. it did happen and that's when you have to kind of accept it but i remember in, but going back to the hospital we were in that room and then the doctors came through and said like do, do you want to say goodbye to andrew So I was kind of like, yeah, okay. And my parents, I think, had already seen him. I'm not sure. But they actually took us through to like the kind of morgue room, you know, where they have the tables and stuff. And he was there. And I remember walking through and there was a whiteboard on the wall that like had his name written on it. And it had kind of been like some of it had been rubbed out, but it still had his name on. And it was so surreal. And then I walked into the room and he was there like lying, lying down. Um, and obviously he he was dead and um, very pale. And it was just so weird because he looked like so much more fat. Like he kind of looked fatter than he did, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, because I think, I don't know why, but it was very odd. And I think they wanted, I think somebody said, do you want to like kiss him goodbye? And I was like, well, no, because I never kissed him in real life. Like yeah, you know, yeah, in, yeah. In, when he was alive, like he just felt super weird. And I don't think for years I really understood maybe how traumatic that is mm. as an experience to sort of suddenly see someone dead.
6: When I was heading into my first upstate New York winter a couple of years ago, um, and I and I had also just had this miscarriage, a friend of mine recommended ice baths oh. to me. Um, yeah. Not as an antidote to grief, but as an antidote to uh, hating the cold and... <laughs> And I went to yeah, him yeah. and I was like, how do you deal? And he was like, actually, you know, ice bathing can just raise your internal thermostat. So give it a shot because mm. I do it and I'm not as cold as I used to be. <laughs> um, and I and I watched this documentary about Vim Hof who um, lost his wife to suicide. And, and he found that immersing himself in cold water, ice water, was the thing that could cut through the grief. Wow. And I found that there was something about getting in the ice and shocking my system mm. that really helped me mourn. That's
1: so interesting. That's so interesting.
6: The other thing I wanted to throw your way is I, um, I imagine you've discussed this and you've thought about this and we've sort of touched on it a few times. But that feeling that you might be getting too good at grief. Do you ever feel that? You have a <laughs> <Yes>. fucking podcast <laughs> oh about it.
5: Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have a
6: song that I want to recommend to you, which closes that this album that I was touring on. Um, the album's called "There Will Be No Intermission." You could even play it on the podcast. It's it's right on point. Um, and the song is called "Death Thing," and it's about that horrific sense that maybe you have gotten too good at grief. Mm. And I wrote that one after my miscarriage. Kind of, I, I, I found it really hard to write about a miscarriage, and that was sort of my way in. Yeah, because I, I, you know, I, I had such an empowered experience. Like weirdly, not what I was expecting. I came out of my miscarriage feeling incredibly whole and very mm. empowered and very still. And very good, which felt very backwards. Not happy that I had lost a child. I was fucking devastated that I lost a child. But I also felt like I, I felt like a warrior. Like I felt like yeah. I had really stood in the fire and, and done a thing. And held death physically in my hands and been okay with it. I found it so difficult to write about and it was so fascinating to me that the, you know, the final song that I wanted to write for this record was, was that one. And what came out is you know, Amanda, maybe you should not be so proud at being good <laughs> at catharsis. Like maybe that's maybe that's just a little too fucked up with, an, with a wink and a nod, right? Because I'm me yeah, and I've yeah. always written about the dark and I've always tried to like go one step further beyond what you would think could be expressed because that's the, that's the challenge that I adore. Let's try to end on a pleasant note You've ended endless things and you know how it goes You lick your wounds, put them in a jar on a shelf You lick a stamp on a letter to your old self there's a whole thing there, too, about humor and how humor and grief must must sleep together, like you just yes. you're not allowed to do grief without some dose of humor or you lose like you just can't, and you know that's sort of like at the end of the day, that song um that closed the record and and closed the tour that song is. When I think of it, it's kind of fucking funny. (laughs) Because it it has to be, you know, because at the end of the day, like, really what you're left with, like, when all of the shit and all of the coal is finally just this little diamond, you kind of have to be able to look at it and go, (laughs) yes. And then everybody died. Um, And I lost everything, and, you know, and it all fell apart. But I... Yeah, I can laugh at that. You've really got this death thing down. I have the ultimate power over death because I can fucking laugh at it.
1: Amanda, I think that is such a good place to finish talking to you. <laughs> Even though I would just keep going and I was so much I want to say, but I was like, that is too good a piece of advice to remember that when all's said and done, you are left with some, some weird shaped diamond that is entirely yours.
6: Yeah. Congratulations. You really got this death thing.
1: Been listening to now that's what i call the Griefcast. i've been Carrie Ed lloyd thank you so much for listening this year i thoroughly thoroughly appreciate it the show is edited by kate holland the music is by the glue ensemble the guests that you've heard today have been adam buxton candice brathwaite monty dom jess mills lee lawrence sarah brown robert diamond and amanda palmer if you want any more information please do head to our twitter our, our instagram at the Griefcast, or you can head to the acast website where you can find all the episodes as well Thank you so much for listening and remember, you are not alone.